1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Barry Allen about his new book, Vanishing into Things Knowledge in Chinese Tradition. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2015, and it's a really wonderfully cross disciplinary, transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary kind of a book. So, what Barry does in this book is takes us through different contexts of Chinese philosophical thought that all in some way are dealing with problems of knowledge. Now, along the way, as you'll hear me talking about um, and praising quite highly, as as I really love this part of the book throughout the interview, along the way, he is putting particular thinkers um, in the context that he's talking about into dialogue with Thinkers that are more familiar from Anglophone and European language philosophy. So Nietzsche, Deleuze and Guattari, um, others, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, but he does it in such a way as to create a conversation that doesn't dominate the main event and the main focus of the story, which is very much an investigation of Chinese philosophical thought from the perspective of a philosophy of knowledge. Along the way, um, what readers will find is a really clear explication of problems particular to knowledge and knowledge-making in the work of Kongzi, modza, Mengzi, Shunze, the Tao Te Ching, Zhuangzi... Um, other um, Neo-Confucian philosophers, Sun Tzu in his art of war, Chan Buddhists, um, Huai Nan etc., etc. Et There's a lot going on here. But in each case, the focus is so tightly on this particular set of problems that it doesn't feel unwieldy or overwhelming. So it's it's a real pleasure to read. There's lots of primary source material integrated into the text. And it's also, I think, a really beautiful example of a work that puts into dialogue Chinese philosophical thought and um, some contemporary thinking about problems of the Anthropocene, ideas of becoming, um, work by Latour and others that are really trying to think with and think through selfhood and the relationship between knowledge and being and becoming in a human and non-human world. Um, so it's about community and understanding things and objects and knowledge and self um, and being and becoming in the context of economy and community in a way that's, I think, really, really um, great to think with. So I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you enjoy the interview. I certainly did. Um, And I hope you have a chance to take a look at it in particular because it's not just a great read, but it's also, I think, going to be really, really useful in lots of different contexts as a teaching material. So enjoy, and thanks as ever for listening. I'm here today to talk with Barry Allen about his new book, Vanishing Into Things, Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Barry, and thanks both for making time to talk with me today and also for writing a really fascinating book that I think is not just fascinating to read as someone interested in these issues, but also that's going to be really, really fascinating to teach with. So, welcome and thank you.
0: Thanks very much for your interest.
1: So, could you start us off, Barry, um, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about how you came? to Work in the field, and I guess for our purposes for the East Asian Study Ch- Studies Channel, how did you come to work on China?
0: Yes, uh, there's a danger of retrospective illusion, of making it all seem so rational in retrospect. It was really just a pileup of accidents. Uh, I don't work, I hadn't, I mean. Ten years ago, I guess, 12 years ago, I had never read anything substantial in Chinese philosophy and didn't expect that I ever would. But uh, accidents began accumulating. Um, one of them was that I began about 12 years ago training Chinese martial arts. I was training this Chinese Chinese style. And that got me somewhat interested. And then accidentally in the mail one day, a new translation of Lao Tzu showed up. And I started reading that and thinking about martial arts experience. And it seemed very resonant in a way that i would never struck me before. (laughs) So that was just one thing. And I I, I began looking uh, into martial arts literature. It's a very frustrating field for scholars because so much of the work is amateur. And often there's no line between what's uh, outrageous myth and what might be fact, so it's difficult to find what scholars could regard as respectable material in this area, but I began searching. Uh, another thing is that I am just an inveterate uh, interdisciplinarian. Uh, I I uh, haven't been able to follow a straight line for more than two or three years at a time for my entire career. Uh and, uh, so I move around a lot and and always, uh, when one project is finished, I'm looking for what might be the roots or seeds of another. Uh, and, uh, the possibility of something in, in Chinese thought just was dimly on my horizon. And then there came an opportunity, uh, I guess it was, uh, now, uh, about Ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago, I had an opportunity to for a for a research leave. Whenever I have a research leave, I try to pick a different part of the world that I've never been to before and arrange some kind of a teaching gig there. <laughs> uh, and uh, this time, the, I I'd spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so that was relatively familiar to me. I had a choice. Now I thought possibly Africa, possibly India, possibly China. Uh, and it just turned out that I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, and I got invited to spend a, to teach for a semester in Shanghai. Uh, so that got me to China, and then I began trying very unsuccessfully to learn a little Chinese and to just poke around and talk to my students. I did a seminar there with graduate students at East China Normal University. Uh. And then the most uh, the most important and the one that really made the book possible was that I married a Chinese woman. Mm-hmm. And when I say that made the book possible, I mean it seriously because I, I, I knew that I didn't want – that. the very fact that I was an, a disciplinary outsider meant uh, immediate suspicion on the part of disciplinary insiders. Uh, it would be obvious from the way I wrote and the way I approached things that I wasn't myself a trained psychologist. Uh, and I knew the kind, I'd had experience with the kind of discreditation that that immediately, uh, uh calls up in many disciplinary policemen. Uh, so having uh, a wife as a native speaker meant that I could just be as careful as I possibly could, uh, in making sure that the reader was aware, say, at any point that no, if, if a word that, that might be resonant in Western philosophy, like knowledge, truth, experience meaning that, that it, when a reader reads my book and those words come up it's always I made this very insistent it's always available exactly what the Chinese word is not just in pinyin but the characters in the <laughs> in the glossary uh, and that would have just been impossible for me uh, if it weren't for my wife uh, uh, who's a scholar and native Chinese speaker and a translator.
1: Sinology as a disciplinary field tends to be particularly um, bounded and unkind about boundary policing, right? I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of people that I've talked to um, find that. I think if, for, for various reasons, some probably historical, um, others, um, I, I don't know what the others are, but it tends, unfortunately, to actually discourage the kind of exploratory, cross-disciplinary work that the book, I think, really beautifully represents um, because of this policing, so I'm really glad um, that the book exists, and I'm really glad that despite um, this kind of sinological boundary policing um, that can happen, that we have an opportunity to read it and to talk about it.
0: Yes, although you, well, what you say is true, and in my experience, but all I can say is that uh, until you've got into epistemology, you know nothing about disciplinary gatekeeping.
1: Okay, <laughs> can, I can. Um, I'll take your word for that. Yeah. Um, So the the book that we're talking about today is not just a study of Chinese philosophy, but it's a study of a very particular set of problems in Chinese philosophy. So the book specifically considers the problem of knowledge in a range of Chinese philosophical discourses. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did you come to focus on this particular problem? And how did you, um, in a book that's very, very ambitious and that ranges very widely across different philosophical traditions, decide on a particular scope to bound the inquiry into the philosophy of knowledge in Chinese discourse
0: thanks it's an interesting and, and uh, important question uh, there's two parts to the answer one part is my earlier work uh, three books before this one came out were all around themes of truth and knowledge especially the last two knowledge uh, and it had been there it was an effort that I was making to try to Uh, attack the extremely limited structure of the discourse on knowledge in contemporary and classical epistemology to try to open up the field, to break out of the circle of theory and proposition and logic, to open it up to uh, what the Greeks called techne instead of episteme, that is technical competence as opposed to pure Aristotelian science, uh, to try to blur the lines between these forms of of knowledge. Uh, Contemporary epistemology and classical epistemology is fixated on what to me is an almost comically narrow part of knowledge. In the conviction on their part that this is the really most important part, the really substantial part, the part that is continuous with science, I I think that that's just all completely wrong. It's wrong even about science, and contemporary science studies only confirms this more uh, in the importance of practicality, the importance of hands-on knowledge, the question of the, uh, the uh, implicit knowledge, the role of implicit knowledge in experimentation and so on. So I have been working on knowledge and interested in, in divergent and unexpected approaches to knowledge to this, and then I began reading the Chinese literature, and I I began finding a theme of knowledge. Now, the interesting thing is that that the Chinese themselves don't regard knowledge as one of their big points. If you pick up a an introduction to Chinese philosophy, you'll find discussions of expected themes in the Confucians and the Taoists. Knowledge won't be one of them. The curious thing is that once it's pointed out, and several sinologists have said this, yeah, you know, you're right. I I see this line going through. I never really, nobody had ever thematized it, but once I hear you say it, uh, I see that that it is true. And so it it seemed to me that the theme of knowledge was perfect for my purpose. Because on the one hand, it it, uh, in Western tradition, of course, it's one of the oldest and most uh, insistent problems that we have. And you can trace a whole, and you can just, you can tell the, practically the whole history of Western philosophy by what different philosophers think about knowledge and all the different positions and points of view and so on. Uh, you don't find that in Chinese philosophy, but you do find uh, a point of view on knowledge and what I consider to be a philosophy of knowledge, even if it's not problematized or articulated in exactly that way among the Chinese themselves. So it seemed to me that there was a a perfect occasion for bringing these two together. You had a problem that fascinated the Westerns, and a discourse on that problem that was completely orthogonal to anything that had happened and all the received standard ideas that the uh, Western tradition has, classical and contemporary, about what it's possible to say or think about knowledge. So what I wanted to do was to put those two together and to show the possibility of a philosophy of knowledge that is substantial, consistent, articulate, developed, uh, which was just which just didn't uh, make any of the moves that epistemologists in the Western tradition are expecting, and therefore just seemed wide open to all kinds of surprises and and. I would hope that that a reader, even an epistemologist, could at some point say, yeah, I would never thought of it that way, but why not?
1: Now, one of the things that you describe in the introduction, um, in positing this and in laying out the foundations for thinking about this problem of um, Chinese philosophical approaches to and, and engagements with knowledge, you look carefully at the ways that those engagements differ from the kinds of engagements with knowledge that we might ascribe to Um, a category we might define as Western philosophers, right? So one of the things that you bring up, I think that's very helpful here in the introduction of the book, is that the Chinese questions about knowledge are, as you put it, responding to different problems and arising from different imperatives. And one of the really interesting themes that comes up early on, and that continues to extend throughout all of the chapters are all the chapters um, that I, you know, that I've uh, read very closely, which is actually all of them, so all of the chapters of the book, is um, some kind of connection with knowledge and truth, or some kind of connection between knowledge and ideas of truth or truthfulness. Um, now, this plays out in at least a couple of different ways. One is the connection between knowledge and a tie um, between knowledge and truth itself, and another is an idea of what, where, and how truthfulness is. So let's maybe start out and lay some foundations by approaching this problem. Can you talk about the ways that a kind of relationship between knowledge and truth is importantly different in the traditions that you looked at with the Western and the Chinese traditions of philosophical knowledge?
0: The biggest difference is simply the absence of truth as a central problem. In the Western tradition, it, uh, truth is absolutely essential to knowledge. There's really Practically no thinker of significance from Plato to yesterday uh who doesn't think that truth is the is essential to knowledge. The big question is what else do you have to add uh and of course truth is interpreted in a very metaphysical and ontological way and uh in the in chinese thought it there is a a, a there is a something resembling a question of truth Uh, the the word is the word that's that's uh used is not is a completely different one it's usually the word translated to something like sincerity or authenticity Uh, but the 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 specific qualities of what you might call western truth and western concept of truth are, are really just not not in play and that is, that was immediately provocative to me because most of the dead ends uh, of contemporary epistemology seemed to me, on my analysis, to flow out of the really unconsidered presumption of the centrality of truth. So it seemed that the Chinese material provided an excellent occasion to say, what would it look like to try to think very seriously about knowledge uh, and its relation to various important things, to put it uh, but so, But when truth is not on the horizon as a compelling, compulsive problem.
1: And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book and that I really respect about the book is that you're not just um, combining all of the different areas of Chinese thought together and subsuming them under one umbrella and trying to make claims about all of them together. You're really, really careful in the book about taking on very different areas and aspects of Chinese philosophical discourse and showing us the ways that problems of and engagements with problems of knowledge are importantly similar in ways that they're importantly different across these different realms. And the first realm that you bring us into is a realm in chapter one of Confucius. Now, this chapter looks closely at the ways, among other things, that Confucian thinkers, as you're um, offering them to us here, are conceptualizing and debating a very particular kind of inaction. And I mention this because this idea of inaction, or wu-wei, is something that's going to thread throughout the book, but we're going to see it um, activating very differently in different contexts. So let's start here. Um, Can you tell listeners or um, talk to us a little bit about the nature and the importance of this notion of inaction, as it's motivating problems of knowledge for the Confucian thinkers that you're uh, approaching in Chapter 1.
0: Yes, uh, it's somewhat conventional, at least in the Chinese philosophical literature that I've read. I mean the literature on Chinese philosophy, the secondary discourse of scholarship, to associate way and effective... Uh, 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 if it, uh, if, if it was, in a, in a, I forget the word that uh, Singerland uses uh, in the title of his book. Uh, to, there's a, a tendency to connect Wu Wei with Taoism as if it were sort of their thought, their property. Uh, this, I think, is a complete mistake. In fact, the word, I mean, I think one of the most prominent early usages of the term itself is in uh, Analects. Uh, uh, it seems to me that most of the differences in various Chinese classical traditions about knowledge come from why they want Wu Wei or what they want to do with it but th- but that the possibility of such action that such action is possible seems to me a common property. so what I look at in the Confucians is what do they how do they want to put Wu Wei in into action, so to speak. Uh, what kinds of action? Of course, the answer is primarily ritual action. Ritual action should be, uh, the, the most, um, uh, smooth, flowing, seemingly effortless kind of action. It's you, you're only real, and a really accomplished ritual practitioner when you can act in that way. So that, that's an example to just start the book off because historically Chinese philosophy begins with the Confucians uh, because the discourse on the uh, privilege of Wei uh, appears as a Confucian theme, and also because it nicely allows me to introduce the topic of the relationship between knowledge and ritual, which uh, very much dominates the Confucian approach, and then, of course, obviously sets up the attack of the Taoists who don't put that kind of importance on ritual, but nevertheless still very much privilege the possibility of a, of a smooth, apparently uh, easy action that's nevertheless highly effective.
1: So we'll approach the Taoists and and their notions of um, Wu Wei in a moment, but before we get there, um, you also have some really, I think, important, very, very clear, and this is important for me to mention because there's a lot of material out there on um, Chinese philosophy that's not so clear and that thus is not as useful to teach with, right, and also to kind of engage with for our own personal use, and this is very clear, and so I just want to, orally footnote um, the fact that I am planning on using this to teach um, as soon as I have an opportunity to teach a course in which... Um you know, that's related to Chinese philosophy. And that's the case from the very first chapter. Okay, so one of the notions that becomes very important that you're also very clearly and helpfully explicating here is the notion of balance, um, and in particular in your discussion of the Zhongyong or or what's been conventionally translated as doctrine of the Mean. Now you talk in this discussion of balance about the completion of things. And I'll just kind of read a little um, sentence that I think is really useful and very clear. Through truthfulness, um, and, and again, for truthfulness here, we have to read a very particular kind of truthfulness, the profound person acquires the responsibility, authority, knowledge, and power to complete things. Okay, so this idea of the completion of things becomes really, really important, not just in the Zhongyong, but also later in your discussion of Shunzi, um, and really this, this comes up in later chapters as well. So can you talk about this idea of the completion of things? Um, how uh, What does this mean for you in terms of how we understand problems of knowledge in Confucian discourse, and also um, how does this usefully maybe inform more general notions of things and how we think about thingness and, op- and objecthood?
0: My understanding of the expression that's translated as completion of things is that to complete things is to complete the circle that brings the external into the human sphere. We complete things when we give them, when we domesticate them, when we give them a place in what becomes a common world. It's not our world but it becomes a common world. I'll just say in parenthesis here that since you mentioned, I think you work in science studies too, that the ideas of Bruno Latour seem to me to be extremely useful here. Uh, It's a question of making a common world. If I could use Latour's language, that's the simplest or most epigrammatic way to say what I understand completing things is it's, it's bringing things into a common world. And I need to emphasize it's not a human world, it's a world that includes us, but includes everything else that we have a name for, that we understand to, uh, to, uh, uh, solicit our concern to be an interest or a problem. Uh, now that action of bringing in domesticating, uh, th- that can be done poorly or well. And what the Confucians want to do is to try to do it very well. And to, and the, the training is a training in how do you what kind of a person with what kind of qualities is able to do that well? Uh, and that requires a long labor of the, uh, destruction of egoism. Uh, a labor against specialization. I think that a Confucian might well say that specialization or specialized is just another word for unbalanced. Uh, uh, there, uh, has this idea of, uh, uh, the sage as the, the manager of things, that sages are good at putting many things together, good at orchestrating uh, a kind of orchestral concept of harmony. So uh, uh, completing things is building a complex and, and non-reductive harmony, a harmony that embraces multiplicity without insisting that it all somehow reduce to an instance of the same.
1: Now anyone can become a sage for Shinza, right? As you describe here, but it also takes really hard work. And so one of the really interesting things happening in this chapter, um, that relates exactly to what you were just saying, is an account of the becoming a sage process, um, being an art, being a kind of artifice, and being a hard, uh, a kind of hard work. And this is important because um, one of the interesting things again happening in your discussion of Shinda specifically is that the. You're informing a kind of a common um, phrase that we often hear um, when there are in descriptions of Shinzo, right human nature is bad. And you're informing that with this larger set of insights around the completeness of or the completion of things, what it is to be an individual in a larger economy of human and, and non-human beings, and thinking about and revisiting um, this insight, human nature is bad, from this perspective, in telling us, look, we're, the, the way that human nature is bad, really what that means is that we're not, as we put it, developmentally calibrated for life with others. So becoming a sage is a very particular way of becoming social. And I think that moves um, this kind of discussion of the ethics of Shinza in a really different direction, and in a really positive and productive direction that opens up lots of kinds of conversations that we can put Shinza into that aren't opened up in other ways of understanding this human nature is bad um, kind of insight. So I really loved that about uh, this chapter, and I just wanted to mark that for listeners. So as we move to the second chapter, we move from um, this context of uh, Confucian authors, which included many more um, authors than we actually have time to talk about today, so it's a very rich chapter, into a chapter on Taoist thought. And this is the chapter that focuses um, in particular on Zhuangzi and the Tao Te Ching. Now you start here with the Tao Te Ching, and you start off by looking back to one of the things that we actually already talked about, and this is the theme of emptiness or wuwei. So here, emptiness is also important to the kind of work that's happening um, for Daoist thought in this text in particular, but it looks very different from emptiness as we saw it in um, the Confucian writings that you discussed in the first chapter. So can you talk about those differences? What's importantly um, for the purpose of the chapter of the book and the work you're doing there, what's importantly different about Wu Wei in this Taoist context?
0: Yes, thanks. Uh, I don't think of emptiness as I, I want to somewhat separate emptiness and Wu Wei, separate them for the purpose of bringing them together. In a specific way. I don't think that any thinker, any Chinese thinker who thematizes Wu Wei automatically has a thought of emptiness. In particular, I don't really see it as a big theme in Confucianism. It seems to me that one of the important originalities of the Tao De Jing uh, is to make that connection. That is to take the idea of Wu Wei which had independently a certain life of its own and to understand that what that involves is a kind of emptying and a kind of emptiness and a kind of privileging of, of emptiness appropriately understood. So that seems to me to be one of the major originalities of uh, the Tao De Jing and indeed of Zhuangzi. I don't I, I regard those as Contemporary text just because the problems of their dating is too complicated for me.
1: So you talk here about um, the important point, or you make the important point, and this is again a, a useful revision of how many people understand um, inaction and ideas of emptiness in action, in the Tao Jing, in particular. You talk about the relationship between ideas of inaction and ideas of intentionality. And you make the point here that inaction in this text does not mean the absence of intentionality. Um, and it's meaningful in very particular circumstances. So, here, um, is insofar as I've um, understood uh, your, your discussion of inaction in the Tao Te Ching, there are two important points to keep in mind that you're, I think, helpfully revising for us um, the relationship of inaction to intentionality and the relationship of inaction to particular circumstances. Can you talk about those a little for us?
0: Yes. Uh, one thing that where I'm aware of saying something that seems to be different. What I didn't find other people saying as I studied the literature was uh, that uh, wu-wei doesn't, doesn't simply mean not doing. Uh, what, really what it means is something like not seeming to do. There might be a kernel of doing. In fact, I think there always is some actual action, and in that sense, intentionality. It's just that it's very small. It's really a question of intensity. Wu wei is the most intensified form of something which, in, in principle, is, is a facet of almost any action, or certainly any action that we can do gracefully, smoothly, efficiently, and so on. Uh, it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to involve a lot. But what? What action, whether action seems complicated or simple, whether it seems flowing and efficient or jerky, very much depends not only on me as agent, but on the audience and what they know. And if the audience is clueless, if they are ordinary, then it could seem magical. Whereas if the audience was another sage, they might, as two magicians are supposed to do when they meet, they might smile. Uh... uh, So Wu Wei retains, I think, an intentionality in the sense that what it really is, is it's subtle and penetrating and intelligent and very intense. It doesn't obviously do a lot because it knows how, where to make the intervention with such precision that a lot isn't required to be done. So it's really a question of knowing how to judge the development of things Knowing how to judge where intervention can be easy to produce large effects downstream. Instead of waiting for problems that anybody can see and then figuring out, trying to figure out clever answers, you avoid the problems in the first place by making interventions as you see the problems in their virtual form on the horizon. And that, that seems to me to be this, the cognitive accomplishment of a Taoist sage, to be able to see that.
1: Now, as we move to Zhuangzi and your discussion of Zhuangzi um, in this chapter, we also move to another theme that recurs throughout the book in really fascinating ways, and this is the theme of art and artifice. One of the really interesting things, at least from the perspective of someone who works on science studies, right, which is uh, what I work on, um, one of the really interesting things about your discussion of Zhuangzi is the way that you're relating the text and reading the text in light of the concepts of tools, machines, and engineering. So you take us into the discussion of artists, um, or artisans rather, and artifice tools and machines in this text to kind of open up a way of understanding the use of artifice in a sage-like way as a kind of Tao engineering. Um, This is fascinating, and, and I'd love if you could talk about it for a little bit.
0: Yeah, thanks very much. It's one of my pet themes, uh, in work that I, the, the two book, two books that I did before this one were very much attempts to try to bring in, uh, uh, engineering, artisanship, uh, art, Greek technique, bring that into epistemology that has just, it's just been so absolutely precluded and shut out. Uh, and I wanted to try to blur the lines between, uh, a kind of epistemological insight into the truth or theory, which the epistemologists privilege so much, with the kind of of working knowledge that's characteristic of engineering or of artisanship. Now, uh, uh, one of the th- one of the most useful things I did when I was beginning to research vanishing into things was I sat down and I can honestly say that I may be one of the few people who has actually read. Uh, 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 science and civilization in China. That <laughs> That's uh,
1: right. There are all these new I, references
0: in the book. I I can't say that I uh, that I've studied every page because sometimes the detail is just too overwhelming. A hundred pages on porcelain kilns, uh, but, but that I have, would
1: also be an insane thing to do. But to I have, yeah.
0: But I have definitely passed every single page over my eye uh, on the lookout for uh, interesting insights and quotations and. From an early point in that research, I began systematically trying to collect everything I possibly could about artisanship, artisans, engineering, engineering problems, the way the Chinese thought about what they were doing in in, uh, uh, hydraulic engineering, for example, one of their strongest points. uh, and then I was, I was gratified to see that at the end of that, I had enough material that I could have an entire section on what I, they're called Dao engineering. What, uh, uh, an approach to artisanship or to engineering, uh, that would, uh, exemplify the lessons of Wu Wei as the most sagacious kind of action.
1: Now, another thing that comes up in this chapter that we absolutely have to talk about, because it makes up the title of the book itself, um, is the idea of what you call vanishing into things. And I think you mentioned that you're invoking Brooks of Warren's translation of um, a notion called Ming as vanishing into things. Now, this epitomizes, as you put it <coughs> in this book, this notion of vanishing into things, the accomplishment of sage knowledge as understood in most of the Chinese thought discussed in the book, but it takes on particular salience in your discussion of, uh, of this particular chapter. So can you talk a little bit about that notion, vanishing into things? Um, what is this, and, and what's so important um, for us to understand about this in order to understand the work that you're doing in this present?
0: I think the beginning is the idea of dismantling ego, uh, that uh, The thought that you're, you're never really going to be able to understand what's worth understanding if you are trying to dominate it, trying to ask yourself, how can I use it? How can I use this to my advantage over my neighbor and so on? So vanishing into things is something that the ego does, a dismantling of the ego that is or that is the long result of a, of a long preparation, whether it were a, a Confucian form of training or a Taoist form of training. Uh it's and it, uh, the, the 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 thought would be to to break down what is in what is intrinsically artificial isolation. Uh, I say intrinsically artificial because really, I mean, metaphysically, however you want to think of it, in, in terms of metaphysics, uh, separate things really are just artifacts. I mean, it's only because we have the kind of perception we do, we have the kind of body we do, that we cut the world up the way we do. Uh, this, of course, is a major lesson of the Zhuangzi, especially the second chapter, uh, and, and so that you, you should never want to ask yourself, what's the right way to cut? Because the cutting is the problem. Uh, but, of course, it's impossible to conduct life without making those cuts, so what you need to do really is have the right attitude towards them, an attitude which, if we were speaking Western languages, uh, one might call irony. somewhat ironical attitude towards the very idea of an object, of a this, of its identity, uh, seeing those as really uh, preliminary and uh, ultimately disposable conceptions that should never be taken seriously. One of the big problems with Western metaphysics is the inordinate seriousness with which it approaches questions like, what is it? What is it itself? What is it from itself, for itself? As if that were the whole secret, when in fact it's really just the first mistake.
1: So thank you so much. Now as we move from this chapter to the next chapter, we move to a discussion of another kind of art, another kind of artifice. I'm continuing the theme that we talked about just a few moments ago, and this is the art of war. Now in China's military philosophy, as you describe here in this chapter, The notion of knowledge is largely consistent with that of the Confucians and the Taoists that we've been reading about in the previous couple of chapters. And this is important in part because of the way it sets up a contradistinction or a contrast with philosophies of warfare, military philosophies um, in more Western philosophical contexts. So you take us into, in particular, Sun Tzu's description of the art of war, where warfare, um, and sort of military uh, preparedness and military theory is very much a problem of knowledge. This is an art of strategy, an art of deception. Um, and it, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about this sort of, um, what do, what, um, for you is perhaps most important, um, in terms of what bringing a perspective from the philosophy of knowledge to bear on understanding the art of war does for how we understand this text. Uh,
0: thanks very much. I, I I like that chapter. I like the topic. I didn't know anything about this material, the art of war material, until I began researching this. And once I found it, I, I thought it was extremely interesting. And I was also surprised at how uh, certain prejudices uh, tend to make this topic not discussed among people who work in, in Chinese philosophy. I mean, there's lots of discussion about Sun Tzu as a text and its historical importance and so on, but it doesn't really feed in as just one more partner in a conversation, which includes the Tao Te Ching and the Analects and so on. And that I wanted to, to change. Uh, uh, it also surprised me once I began following Art of War literature and looking at Art of War literatures in a world context, Machiavelli, Caesar, uh, Clausewitz. Uh, it surprised me how no, how little knowledge was. The, the, the term intelligence, uh, that is in the sense of espionage, uh, so forth, uh, it, the, it does not appear in Clausewitz. I've got an electronic copy so I can actually inspect every word that he uses, and he, he never uses that or any obvious uh, 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 terms. Same thing with Machiavelli. Uh so it was it it really is a profound originality of the Chinese art of war to see, as I put it, war as a problem of knowledge that war can be approached artfully as an art as a tech day precisely because the decisive factors for the kind of victory that the Chinese most admire, namely moderately bloodless It's easy to exaggerate that and think it could be really bloodless, but unfortunately, we really are talking about war. <laughs> Uh, that that depends on knowledge. That's how they understood the possibility of of pursuing war in the way that they most admired.
1: Now, there's a lot more um, happening in this chapter, Chapter 3, The Art of War, that we won't have a chance to um, talk in depth about so that we have a chance to get to the other chapters, but I just want to mark for listeners that there's a really interesting contrasting discussion in this chapter of Clausewitz's work and I wanted to mention this because it really exemplifies the ways that the book as a whole, and this is just an exemplar of this, is bringing to bear a kind of comparative approach that acts to help us see the Chinese texts in a new way without being you know, a, a comparative study. Right? So this is very much a book about Chinese philosophies of knowledge, but that engages work from Western traditions like Deleuze and Guattari, like Isabel Stengers, Bruno Latour, um, Nietzsche comes up a lot in ways that don't feel overbearing and don't feel like they're shifting the center of gravity away from the main um, topic of um, knowledge among uh, Chinese philosophers in different places and different times. And so it's it's a really difficult balance to strike, and I wanted to just mark the fact that the book strikes that really impeccably well, and I really appreciated that because it's another way that the book is really useful, I think, to teach with in lots of different contexts.
0: Thanks very much. It was very much what I, you, you described very well what I hope I could do. I didn't know if I was successful.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinarily hard to, to cre- again, to um, strike that balance, and the book does that just exceptionally well. I think it's a model of what it can look like to do that. So as we move from this chapter to the next chapter, we move to a chapter on Chan Buddhism. Now Buddhism, as you um, describe here in this chapter, is a context in which salvation is a kind of, as you put it, accomplishment of knowledge. So this is very much part of our larger exploration of problems of knowledge and philosophies of knowledge among Chinese traditional um, sort of areas of thought. Now for Chan Buddhism, as you put it, knowledge is both an obstacle and a kind of suffering, and at the same time, only knowledge can take one to the threshold of enlightened emptiness, and that's done right from the chapter. Okay, so emptiness is going to very much be something that we're going to be thinking about in this chapter in relation to problems of Now, you describe emptiness in Chan as a way of overcoming duality. This is really, really important in terms of the larger context of how we think and write about knowledge, how it is to acquire knowledge, subject and object dichotomies and dualities. So could you talk a little bit about that? Emptiness and duality specifically, as it informs the way you understand problems of knowledge animating um, this Chan Buddhist
0: material? Uh, Non-duality is... I mean, everyone who looks into Buddhism knows it's a major concept, but it's not a concept that has a philosophical autonomy or has really has any philosophical presence outside of specializations in Buddhism, in particular in Western thought. It doesn't, and it should. We tend to think uh, in Western philosophy, we think that the opposite of dualism is monism, that if you're not a dualist, you must be a materialist. You think there's only one, uh, whereas the, the 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 Buddhists, particularly the Chan Buddhists, much more Uh, much more cogently, more insightfully and subtly see that monism is really still dualism because you just contrast either your monism with the false dualism of the dualists that you're enemies with. uh, You end up just just replicating the very puzzles that you thought you were breaking free of. The, The real challenge is emptiness. One of the things, though, that I particularly wanted to insist on is that maybe uh, it it maybe this is somewhat of an art maybe only Western readers do this I don't know because in western in Western reading we read about emptiness in Dao Jing we read about emptiness in in Buddhism and maybe some incautious and uh uh amateur thinkers think that this is the same I, I, of course the Chinese words are completely different uh i I think this is one of the biggest differences between Chan uh uh, or Buddhism really more generally and Taoism uh, is how they understand emptiness. Uh, I, I admit that as I worked through this material, I found myself developing a s- somewhat antipathy to Buddhism, uh, in the sense that I certainly knew I wasn't one and, and didn't really want to become one precisely because of this idea of emptiness. I mean, the Buddhist teaching seems to me, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a reductive simplification. Life is not worth – there's just nothing good. It's suffering. And every time you think something is not suffering, it's just because you've been captured again by delusion. Uh, That is, uh, I think – I mean, I can imagine what Nietzsche would say about that. It is an extremely negative view, and that you might as well just be extinct, and that that would be superior to anything you can possibly accomplish. The Taoists really do not think of it that way. Da- uh, emptiness in Taoism is, is, uh, if I can use my own metaphor for the book, the Taoist emptiness is a field, uh, a field that's resting, a field that's not in cultivation, but only for the purpose of being all the more rich in the next season. <laughs> Uh, Whereas Buddhist emptiness is just an attempt to try to to just suck everything positive out until you're just no longer tempted by any delusive appearance of positivity in the world uh, or the world at all. Uh, So uh, I wanted to underscore how different the thought of emptiness in Taoism and in Buddhism is. And to underscore the, what to me is the more secular and, uh, well, secular dimension of Taoism. It's a philosophy for, for one, people who want to live and not people who want, who see life, the very being of life as a problem.
1: I think um, one of my favorite sentences from this chapter really nicely encapsulates this. You say, Buddhists do not want to vanish into things. Things, too, must vanish. So it's one of many examples of these threads that link these chapters and help move us through the chapters and see the kinds of resonances um, among these different thinkers. Now, another one of those resonances or another one of those threads is the idea of an original mind. And this is something that you talk about in this chapter on Chan Buddhism, and that also leads us to um, some of the discussion in the next chapter. So in, um, in the context of taking us into an investigation of the idea of no thought, right, not thinking, um, you describe that no thought is actually thought um, of a particular qual- quality. Just like um, when we talked about emptiness or inaction previously, it wasn't the absence of intentionality. It was a particular inaction is a particular kind of action. Here, no thought is a particular kind of thought. And the idea here is not to stop thinking; is to stop thinking um, insofar as we're clinging or stopping um, in the course of that thinking. So it's think, no thought is thought of a very particular kind. In this way, according to the Chan Buddhist thought that you describe, uh, describe in Chapter 4, um, in this sort of thinking, in, th- no thinking as a kind of thinking, we're able to recover the original condition of the mind or Buddha nature. Now, a concern with recovering the original condition of the mind is also something that is dealt with by the thinkers um, of Neo-Confucian philosophy that you talk about in Chapter 5. So Chapter 5 is a chapter called The Investigation of Things, and this is a chapter that looks at some of the most important philosophers of Neo-Confucian thought. One of these is a philosopher that I think probably listeners um, of this podcast will be familiar with, at least in name, and this is the philosopher Zhu Xi. Now, in his engagement with the great learning or the Dachyue, Zhu Xi is particularly interested in the notion of the investigation of things. Now, you talk about Zhu Xi's approach to the investigation of things in terms of his approach to knowledge, and this is important to understand so that we can understand how other thinkers in this chapter are importantly different from what Xi is doing. So can you take us into, for you, what's most important for us to understand about Xi and the investigation of things in the context of this larger philosophy of knowledge um, that you're building, and particularly also in the context of people who are not interpreting this in the way that Xi is doing?
0: Uh, The Discovering that Da Shui was, for me, a real turning point. I read it at an early point, and, and just from the very beginning, that expression that occurs at the end of the first chapter of Ge Wei, uh, Ge Wu, investigating things, uh, it just sparked me immediately. And I just had to do everything I could to possibly find out what this meant and what had been said about it, because it, it, I mean, it seems so empiricist. On the surface, I mean, my question was: Is that just a surface appearance, or is it really? Does it really mean investigating in the way that say Aristotle investigated, or the way that uh, Newton investigated? Uh, and I think in in Jushi, it it does to some extent. I mean, I think he really means going out, looking, finding, figuring out. Uh, you know, one important difference, of course, is that for him. Uh, the study of books, of the classics, is just as important as any other kind of material research so that he doesn't distinguish between learning in a scholarly sense and empirical investigation. He sees them as all of a piece. But that that seems good, too, and any reader of Derrida ought to be happy enough to to see that there's a point to that. Uh, I I think that Jushi conceives of investigation as the work of dismantling the ego, that you you study and study and study things, and the more you do so, the more they, they begin to unfold their individuality and not be dominated by the categories that you insist they have if they're to be important to me or important to some predetermined or uh, preconceived usage that I have. So the more you can investigate, and the better you are at investigating, the more those those that 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 calcinated kernel of ego is attacked and eroded and uh, liquefied. Uh, so, that uh, I think is uh, that I mean, that connects with other themes in the book, and it allowed me to put Zhu Xi in place there. Uh, it also rather starkly uh, brings up the difference with uh, Wang Yangming.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So, could you, um, would you talk about that? Uh, your Your appreciation of what's important for the larger purposes of this chapter um, it has, of, uh, or what's important about the differences between Wang Yangming and Jushi in this context?
0: Uh, Jushi, I think, uh, it wanted us to really investigate the many things that have to be completed so that we need to know about the diverse claimants in the community and what are the external uh, uh, individual things, whether they're artificial or natural, other organisms, other people, other uh, neighbors, Uh, How and how can, through investigation, how can a common community be organized? Yang Ming seems to me to set all that aside and concentrate instead on breaking down the ego through identifying and deconstructing desire desire for him is, for all the, I mean, all the Neo-Confucians regard selfishness, of course, as a major flaw. But in Wang Yangming, it seems to be the flaw. And getting it right, that is rectifying uh, your own heart is the major problem, uh, and this I think is distinctive. It's not something that you found in the earlier Song Dynasty Neo Confucians, uh, for better or for worse. I think that uh, I think that some people regard this as uh, perhaps rightly as uh, the, the problem. I mean, I mean, his own contemporaries sometimes thought that he was too much fixed on himself, or not himself, but on his heart, on the interior, and uh, not. Paying appropriate attention to how to actually build a world, a more inclusive world.
1: Now, this um, insight is really important for highlighting one of the really important kinds of work that this chapter does, and really that the book itself does as a whole. And this is taking the discourses of Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming and other Neo Confucians, and also other thinkers that you are talking about in the book, and relating them more broadly to thinkers who are concerned with knowledge and action care and concern, fact and epistemology, and one of the thinkers that we mentioned explicitly in this chapter is Bruno Latour. So we've talked about this a little bit already, um, but in this chapter in particular you consider the ways that some of these neo Confucian thinkers, um, and and understanding them in relation to larger questions about empiricism might help us understand what's going on here in terms of Um, the kind of distinction that Latour is making between a matter of concern and a matter of fact. Um, And the importance that Latour is bringing, Latour and others are bringing, to understanding knowledge and action from the perspective of knowing how to integrate ourselves and uh, sort of deal with relations that come out of our sharing a world with other human and non-human beings. And not a lot of material that I've seen That looks at the Chinese case or looks at um, Chinese philosophy and Chinese discourse is really creating this dialogue between um, discussions of human and non human being and becoming and discussions of what's happening in Chinese philosophy. And I think that's really, really important. Um, So, can you maybe talk a little bit about that in terms of the work that's happening in this?
0: Uh, yes, I think, uh, I think I've said the, the gist of it, uh, already because I, I, I didn't want to, uh, Bruno Latour is an author that I've read ever since his very first book. I still have a paperback copy of his first book before it was reprinted by Princeton University Press. Wow. And, uh, I've often, I just discovered him completely by accident and I am very soon developed the opinion that he was the best philosopher of science that we have. And that was before everybody felt that way. Uh, so I've been teaching and reading and writing about his work for a long time. I, I, I deliberately, I mean, I, I had a choice between either this was going to be a big discussion, which would be maybe whole chapters or whole books to really get into Latour and lay it, put it in place and connect it with the Chinese. I didn't want to do that. It didn't fit the economy of the book. So instead, there are just hints and you're a perfect reader for that. I mean, if there are people that know Latour's work and they can say, oh, yeah, I see how that would definitely connect. That's uh, what I was hoping for. Uh, in, uh, the dashui, we have this idea of investigating things, extending knowledge. Uh, uh, those seem to me uh, the, sort of the, the, the most epigrammatic and concise way that I can explain those in Western terms is precisely between Latour's idea of uh, uh, finding out what's out there sending us signals is there anything that we haven't picked up yet? How can we decode the signals? How can we sort out the signal from the noise? Uh, and then once we have that, then we have the question of building the community. Is this a signal we can live with? Now that we think we've got it translated, of course, it could be wrong, and we have to start again as soon as we – no sooner finish, we have to start again. But once we think we know the signal, then – now, what do we do about it? Is this a signal that we have to just turn off, or can we build it into our community? The icebergs are, the, the uh, Arctic icebergs are sending us increasingly amplified signals now. Uh, and uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to simply say, well, this is just a scientific problem, or it's not a real problem, or the scientists are themselves divided. Now it's a question of I mean, we can't turn it off. We have to now make decisions about how to bring the icebergs into our community because they are impinging on it, and they jolly well will be. It's just a question of on what terms and how, what possible room for negotiation is there.
1: Now, some of the terms that you've already been mentioning, signal and noise, icebergs, really beautifully segue into the next chapter. This is the last chapter. into a chapter on resonance. Now, this is a chapter where you end us up with a consideration of exactly the kinds of issues that you've just been talking about um, in the context of broader discourses about the Anthropocene, right? And this has been a very strong concern um, of many of us and, and a, a kind of rubric under which a lot of really interesting kinds of work um, across the humanities and social sciences has been coming out lately. And you talk about the idea of vanishing into things as a way of mixing in the context of how we understand and talk about this broader issue of the Anthropocene. Now, this all comes under the framework, speaking of signal and noise, of the notion of resonance in this chapter. And so perhaps as a way of bringing us toward our conclusion, can you talk um, for us about, for you, what's crucial for us to understand about the notion of resonance as you're introducing it here that'll help us inform these larger conversations about healing and becoming in the human
0: and non-human world. I was very excited to discover the theme of resonance Ganyin, uh, in Chinese thought, especially in the Hainanza. Uh In that chapter on resonance, I was really... there's Resonance is itself resonating. On the one hand, there was a discourse on resonance in Chinese thought, a, 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 an attachment to what it is, a, a respect for the peculiar kind of power of resonance, the way it can connect things. Uh, not necessarily mechanically, but we introduce connections. But then I also want to talk about, okay, resonance between what's happened, what happened in the Chinese tradition and us. So it's an East-West resonance as much as resonance as a theme within Chinese thought. Uh, the, the thing that, one thing that particularly interests me about the idea of resonance, and here I'm not speaking about the Chinese idea, but simply what it is as a phenomenon, uh, is uh, the, the interconnection of things. It seems like a bit of a platitude to talk about interconnection, but it seems to me that it's a really important fact, and it's one that science just continues to confirm over and over again. Uh, it's really uh, no disconfirming at all, but it becomes only more obvious that, that, that things have interacted, that there really is no such thing as an isolated system. Scientists love to discuss isolated systems because the mathematics becomes a great deal simpler. But that's the only advantage, simpler representation, not... Uh, it's not. It doesn't mean that they're, they become more realistic, and it certainly doesn't mean even that they become better predictors of what will actually happen in the world where things aren't isolated. So you have in China, uh, in the tradition that of the thinking around residents, the idea that just embraces and even, you might say, loves the interconnection of things, that takes it for granted, that builds on it, that sees it as an important thought that must never be lost sight of – uh, and that's something that I would like to encourage in Western thought. It seems to me that it's absolutely indispensable for serious ecological philosophy. In fact, eco- ecological philosophers are most open to this. They would say, yes, that is a, something we're trying to get to. And I would just like to say that this shouldn't be just one more specialization. That this needs to be a thought for our time and not just for some specialists with certain problems.
1: So I think that's a perfect note um, to bring to our conclusion. So Barry, thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with me today. It's an amazing book, and it's an amazing book that's also incredibly rich. Now, we just barely scratched the surface of what's going on here. There's a lot more that readers will find, or that listeners will find rather when they become readers um, and explore the book on their own. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't get to or that didn't come
0: no, nothing. There are many things we could have talked about, but these are fine.
1: So now that the book is out, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now, and what can we hope to read next?
0: Uh, it caught me completely by surprise. I I didn't see this coming, but it but it did, and now I'm so deeply into it that I uh, I'm going to be working on it for a long time, and that is. Uh, 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 I began – I had an assignment to write something about William James and one of his ideas of radical empiricism. And I asked myself, what what really is radical empiricism? What makes empiricism radical? I hadn't ever thought about this much. In graduate school, philosophy people, we all learn a bit about empiricism. We can go teach it to introductory students. But I really started – I wanted to really try to unravel where – what is this? And one of the first things I discovered is that there is no empiricism, there are only empiricisms, lots of them. Uh, and I began trying to unfold this and discover its roots, especially important is medicine, ancient medicine. I had no idea that ancient medicine was so decisive in the gradual emergence out of rationalism of an experimental and uh, experiential conception of knowledge in modern philosophy. It is. So what I want to do is a large book in two parts. The first part is just a kind of a genealogy of empiricisms going back to the ancient medical empiricists, where it all began outside of philosophy. It's interesting that this philosophy, at many of its most decisive points, philosophy has been penetrated by something from the outside that no one saw coming. And medicine is a beautiful example of that in antiquity. Anyway, trace that right up through to the logical empiricism of the 20th century. And then in the second half of the book, talk about the theme of a radicalization of empiricism, which is a theme that... Uh, seems to me to connect William James, uh, Bergson, uh, Deleuze, and I'm, I, I could bring Dewey in if it doesn't become uh, overwhelming. But I want to talk about James, Bergson, and Deleuze in particular, and how they are <laughs> radicalizing an empiricist tradition that goes back to medical roots and, in ancient philosophy.
1: It actually um, really flows quite nicely from the book that we're talking about, right? I mean, there's a lot of moments in the book, and we didn't talk about this, but medicine and um, discourses of Chinese medicine, in particular figures of Chinese medical doctors that are used as examples in this literature, actually come up in a lot of the chapters. And you're also very interested, at least from my perspective, as a reader in the book, in empiricisms, right? What that could mean, what that might mean. So it actually seems like a supernatural flow from the book. um, And I can't wait to read it.
0: Retrospective illusions.
1: (laughs) That's right. So uh, thank you so much, Barry. Congratulations on the book. Um, I can't wait to teach with this and to recommend it very widely. And best of luck with your new research.
0: Thanks very much for your kind words and your
1: interest. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.